You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. In June, I spoke with Garrett Vanderweiss about an article that he wrote about U.S. President Biden's remarks about Taiwan when he was in Tokyo in May. Just last week, Garrett wrote a very timely article about the controversy over U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi's plans to visit Taiwan. In April, Pelosi had planned to visit Taiwan as part of a tour to the Indo-Pacific region, but had to cancel because she contracted COVID-19. Last week, Pelosi left with a delegation for Asia, but made no mention of visiting Taiwan. There had been speculation that the Chinese would attack if U.S. fighter jets escorted Pelosi's planes into Taiwan. And in a phone conversation with U.S. President Joe Biden, Chinese President Xi Jinping warned Biden against playing with fire over Taiwan. In his piece for the Taipei Times, Garrett stated that it is essential that Pelosi stand her ground and push through with her plan to visit Taiwan. We'll share Garrett's Taipei Times article and a few others about this situation on our website for this episode. In my interview with Garrett, I asked him to explain in detail what the Taiwan Relations Act is and what it tells us about the relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan. We also talked about the so-called U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity. How his work on the Taiwan communique evolved from 1980 to 2016 and his thoughts on the war in Ukraine and how it relates to China and Taiwan. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATWA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATWA was founded in 1988, and its mission is 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. And 5. To reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Garrett. Hello, good evening. Great. Um, so, Garrett, I recently did an episode about the Taiwan Fellowship Act, and it occurred to me that it would be a good time to talk about the better known and most well-known first act involving Taiwan, the Taiwan Relations Act. And then I saw an article that you wrote about President Biden's remarks about Taiwan on May 23rd when he was in Tokyo to attend the quilateral security dialogue on the launch of the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum. So I wanted to ask you first, since you mentioned this in the article, how are Biden's remarks and his responses on that day similar to his responses to other questions in the past in relation to Taiwan and the Taiwan Relations Act? Well, I think it is, uh, of course, fascinating to see that President Biden has now three times responded to questions that asked, uh, are you willing to defend Taiwan? 
and that he has said uh, yes to that. Uh, the first time was in August of last year when George Stephanopoulos asked him whether the withdrawal from Afghanistan might embolden China against Taiwan. And uh, Biden then equated the commitment to Taiwan with that to NATO, Korea, and Japan. Mm -hmm. And he said, we have made a commitment, we have made a sacred commitment, mm -hmm. and uh, with Taiwan it is very much uh, like Japan, Korea, and NATO. So that was the first time, and uh, the press, of course, tumbled all over Biden saying, is he uh, deviating from the uh, status quo, is he deviating from strategic ambiguity? But then two months later, in October, um, he was at a CNN town meeting moderated by Anderson Cooper. And the same question came up. Somebody from the audience uh, um, asked him, uh, China just tested a hypersonic missile. What will you do to keep up with them militarily? And do you vow to protect Taiwan? And Biden said, yes, yes, we are. Um, very much uh, committed to the defense of Taiwan. And uh, yes, we have a commitment to do that. And then the third time uh, was uh, just a few weeks ago in Tokyo when he was asked uh, by a reporter, um, well, you have not really been willing to um, uh, get involved in the Ukraine conflict directly for obvious reasons. Uh, but are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? And Biden said, yes. And then the reporter asked, you are? That's the commitment we made. So the point is that Biden has now three times said very clearly, we are ourselves, America, willing and able uh, to uh, help uh, defend Taiwan. And uh, not only by... Uh, selling the military weapons, defensive weapons, but also our own commitment to do that. And if you go back to the Taiwan Relations Act, that was your question, um, mm -hmm. then you see that the Taiwan Relations Act not only says that the U.S. Um, will provide Taiwan with weapons of uh, defensive nature, and that is always the clause that has been quoted by the administration and the press. But there is a second clause that says um, it's the policy of the United States to maintain the capacity of the U.S. to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize mm -hmm. the security or social and economic system of the people of Taiwan. So this second clause really provides the backbone for the legal basis for the U.S. itself to play a direct role. And um, until now, the press and the government has basically focused a little bit too much on that first article, but mm -hmm. now the second article is coming out. And you see in subsequent statements by Tony Blinken, for instance, his speech at the end of May, he quotes this specific uh, clause in um, Singapore, Secretary of Defense Austin 
quotes this clause. And mm -hmm. in the new version of the website of the State Department, this clause is quoted. So they have kind of rediscovered it. It's always been there. Um, right. but not emphasized sufficiently and now they are doing that much more so I think that's the answer to that question mm -hmm. and could you talk specifically about that second clause or what's in the town relations act for people who may not be so familiar so the clause basically says it is policy of the United States to maintain the capacity of the U.S. to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion. Um, so any resort to force, that is pretty strong, you know. So almost any uh, time that China would resort to weapons, this means that the United States would um, uh, step in. And, of course, there is the role of, uh, of Congress. I think the, uh, the, with, in the United States, you always have a hot debate between uh, the executive power, the president, and Congress on, um, on who can uh, decide to, uh, to, to start a war, basically. That was the, discussion, the hot discussion after the invasion in Iraq and so on. And um, so the Taiwan Relations Act also says the president is directed to inform Congress promptly of any threat to the security or social or economic system of the people of Taiwan and any danger to the interest of the United States arising therefrom. And then the president and the Congress shall determine in accordance with the constitutional process, appropriate action by the U.S. in response to such danger. So this states pretty clearly that if there is, let's say, an invasion by China of, of uh, uh, Taiwan, that the U.S. would step in and have appropriate action by the U.S. It does not specifically define exactly what, but this clause, uh, this, this phrasing, is actually very, very similar to what is in Article 5 of NATO, to what is in the Article 5 of the uh, uh, Defense Treaty with, with Japan. So it's not exactly the same, you know, but it gets pretty darn close and it goes much farther than any commitment uh, that the U.S. has towards um, uh, Ukraine, for instance. Thank you for pointing that out. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the background of the Taiwan Relations Act. Are you familiar with that? Like, do you know who initiated it um, and why it was necessary and what was involved in the drafting of the act? Well, that was uh, part and parcel of the de-recognition of the government in Taipei as the government of China. As we all remember, the Kuomintang government continued to claim it represented all of China in the 50s, 60s, and until the late 70s. Of course, in the 70s, this uh, became less and less tenable, and the U.S. understood that, and they therefore opened towards uh, Beijing, had the um, uh, meetings that Kissinger and Nixon had in uh, 
Beijing with Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong and so on. So then uh, in December 1978, the uh, Carter administration rather suddenly without directly consulting Congress beforehand, uh, announced that it would establish diplomatic relations with Beijing and cut diplomatic relations with uh, Taipei. So that was a major shock for Taiwan, of course, of course for the Kuomintang, but for the people themselves also. And um, in the United States, the uh, State Department then started writing a Taiwan Policy Act, I think it was called, and the main author of that was actually Harvey Feldman, who was uh, in the East Asia Pacific desk of the State Department, and he wrote some things, you know, about uh, the uh, uh, how the informal relations with Taiwan would be structured, but it was a pretty vague document. So Congress didn't like that very much, and in the beginning of 79, a number of people in Congress uh, started writing their own version, what later became the Taiwan Relations Act, and in this Taiwan Relations Act, they embedded these security clauses that I just mentioned. Um, they embedded a human rights clause, which was also very important for Taiwan. And Senator Ted Kennedy and Claiborne Pell were very instrumental in bringing that about. And also Congressman Jim Leach from Iowa played a very big role in that. So that was passed um, in April to uh, 1979, and from basically uh, that time on, the U.S. had formal diplomatic relations with China and not with Taiwan, and they started to, to, to organize how the relations with Taiwan would be set up with the American Institute in Taiwan as a unofficial organization and diplomats who were going to be sent to Taiwan, they basically had to retire temporarily from the State Department and then later on come back again. Uh, so that is all past and that is history and now it's a much more streamlined program. But still, the Taiwan Relations Act um, is the basis for informal relations with Taiwan. So yes, there are a number of positive points like the uh, defense and security clause, like the human rights clause and others, but it still means we don't have formal diplomatic relations. Do you know if there was any involvement or initiation from the Taiwanese American community um, in drafting the Taiwan Relations Act. I mean, of course, we hear things like this within the Taiwanese-American community that maybe a similar idea was floated around in certain circles, an idea of something that was similar to a document that later became the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, I have not heard that 
part of it of a uh, separate document or idea, but um, when the discussions took place in early 1979, um, there was basically um, one person who was very instrumental in influencing these senators and congressmen in uh, paying more attention to the native Taiwanese perspective, and that was Chen uh, Tansan, uh, Mark mm -hmm. Chen. Mm -hmm. um, he was at that time a scientist with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, mm -hmm. and in his free time, he would uh, talk to Kennedy and Pell and to the others mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. try to impress on them, hey, pay mm -hmm. attention to human rights and democracy mm -hmm. in Taiwan, mm -hmm. because the Kuomintang is not really uh, representing uh, the people of Taiwan. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, after the Kaohsiung incident of December 1979, um, mm -hmm. I actually joined him on uh, several occasions. I was uh, studying in Seattle at the time and I doing see. my graduate work. Okay. And I worked with Mark Chen, um, t talking to Congress, uh, trying to influence people in Congress. Um, oh, wow. I came to Washington a couple of mm -hmm. times, uh, mm -hmm. actually physically meeting with people in Congress. Oh, but um, for um, for those months, we had a lot of phone contact. You know, back in yes. those days, you didn't have email yet, so you had to <laughs> right. um, to make phone calls and. Yes. Um, I was just a poor uh, graduate student, and mm -hmm. in uh, a couple of those months, my monthly phone bill was about $800, while oh my, my yeah. uh, income was $500. I still remember oh the amounts. <laughs> but fortunately, we had uh, friends in the Taiwanese community who subsidized us. And that right. was also the time when we started the Taiwan Communique. Mm -hmm. And the Taiwan Communique was really dedicated to influence uh, people in Congress, in the administration, in the press, give them the native Taiwanese perspective of developments in Taiwan. So therefore, in all those years from 1980 on uh, through the uh, late 1980s when the transition to democracy took place, uh, we were every two months sending out our communique with, uh, with articles about the prison conditions of the Dangwai leaders of uh, developments in Taiwan and so on and so forth. So right. in a little uh, way, we also helped, uh, uh, helped push things in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. I don't think it was a, a small thing at all. Yeah, and in those days, as you said, there was no email, there was no internet. And how how did you spread the word, so to speak, with the Taiwan Communique? Because also, you know, this was martial law era, so certainly materials like this would not be acceptable in Taiwan. So how did this get passed around? And how did you... Get information well, well from our, our main audience was here in the United States right. and right. in and in Europe. Of course, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the first uh, 
year or so we were still in in Seattle but then we uh, I got my PhD and we moved back to the Netherlands so we mm -hmm. just basically mm -hmm. took the whole Taiwan communique mm -hmm. under our arm and continued to publish from the Netherlands mm -hmm. but our target audience were these people in Congress so I basically right. had all 535 uh -huh. people in Congress on my uh -huh. mailing list and right. people in the press and, uh, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth so that was uh, the mode of operations at that time but as i indicated earlier mm -hmm. the uh, telephone was an important uh, medium so uh, i made hundreds of phone calls in those days <laughs> yeah did you use the facts a lot like how did you get information out of taiwan because that's the other issue is that you're trying to report on things that are happening in taiwan because there wasn't a lot of coverage in media or accessibility yep. and you wanted to let people in DC and around the world that were concerned about Taiwan know what was yep. going on. That's a very important point. Uh, just getting information out of Taiwan was uh, was not easy. And but basically, the Taiwanese community had developed a network of uh, people in California, people like uh, Zhang Fumei who later on became the uh, um, the uh, uh, overseas affairs uh, uh, commissioner for Taiwan mm -hmm. and others uh, who got information out and we shared that amongst ourselves and um, then we were usually the ones to kind of put it on paper in English Mm -hmm. and then uh, make it into a Taiwan communique and then send it around. Um, so actually the facts uh, didn't come uh, around until a little bit later. It wasn't until I think 86 or 87 sure. that mm -hmm. we actually got a fax. Uh, <laughs> before, before that it was just incredibly expensive. And yes, phone calls. I, yeah, yeah. But the effects uh, machine also costed an incredible yes. amount of money these days or when, when they were right. popular, you know, you mm -hmm. could buy them for a couple hundred dollars. But mm -hmm. I still remember the facts that we got. Uh, uh, the Taiwanese community also helped us pay for it. And that was mm -hmm. like $6,000 wow. for a fax machine. You know? really? So it was <laughs> just still incredibly new technology yeah. and therefore yeah. very expensive. Mm -hmm. But uh, for a number of years, uh, we indeed used that. But then, of course, later on, when emails started to become more prevalent, uh, mm -hmm. that became more of the medium. But by that time, the early and mid-90s, of course, the um, human rights situation in Taiwan had improved so well. Uh, so uh, it wasn't really necessary to get this urgent uh, stuff out of Taiwan. And... Mm -hmm. Also, just letters. Uh, people wrote letters in those days, so uh, and uh, so they would send information with reports about uh, prison conditions and stuff like that. Right. And and last but not least, the Dangwai magazines, which were mm -hmm. published from uh, 1979 with Mei Li Dao and Ba mm -hmm. uh, were were important because they were able to send those out and we collected the whole 
bunch of those and also based a lot of our reports on what was written in those Dangwai magazines. Right. So those were an important source of information. Okay. The um, George Washington University Library has a pretty complete collection now of all those Dangwai magazines. So we are trying to get them to um, digitize those so that they are available via the internet and much oh, more publicly available. So researchers in the future can just go back to those and and use them for their research on what really happened behind the scenes in Taiwan during the uh, let's say early 1980s until the late 1980s. Oh, that's wonderful. That's good to know. And now for a short break. Hello listeners, we're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content under 20 minutes long, and we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. Back in those days that we had to use mail. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, and because we know that the mail going into Taiwan, at least, was censored, that people's mail was opened. Um, so was it the mail going out, being sent abroad, not um, opened or so tightly monitored? Yeah, it was monitored, but they couldn't check everything, I, I mm -hmm. presume. So there was still a lot of information that did come out. And uh, mm -hmm. But, I mean, uh, they... Presumably, also uh, uh, caught and confiscated the number of uh, letters with information that they didn't like. So, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, such a system always is pretty leaky. So information does get out, let's say, relatively easily. I don't know if you wanted to add something because that was very interesting. Uh, what you were talking when you were talking about the Taiwan communique and how the way of sharing information was through letter writing. Yeah. So, yeah, one other point, of course, after the transition to democracy in the early 1990s, mm -hmm. our focus shifted considerably. Before that, we had been focused on prison conditions, on right. uh, uh, releasing political prisoners and things like mm -hmm. that. So after mm -hmm. the early 1990s, the shift became uh, trying to 
get Taiwan more international presence, uh, participation mm -hmm. in international organizations like the WHO. Mm -hmm. And um, so letting the world know that Taiwan was now a democracy and very different from the old ROC, um, right. which had been claiming to be government of all of China. Right. And I think that transition is mm -hmm. in a sense still going on because mm -hmm. the U.S. and other countries still have a quote-unquote one China policy right. based on the 1970s. In the 1970s yeah. there mm -hmm. were two governments saying they mm -hmm. were the real government of all of China, <laughs> right. uh, Be Beijing and Taipei, mm -hmm. and uh, increasingly uh, Taipei lost its credibility. Right. But because of that uh, dual claim, the international community eventually decided, hey, we only uh, recognize one as right. the government of China, mm -hmm. and that is Beijing. Um, mm -hmm. So that is basically what one China policy means. But over time, it has evolved into a understanding that one China policy means that Taiwan is part of China. That's, of course, what Beijing wants us to believe. Right. But that was not the origin of our one China policy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an important uh, thing for governments yes. to realize that right. the decision they made in the 1970s was based on that dual claim from two different regimes. Um, and that didn't mean that Taiwan uh, is in some fashion part of China. So we have to fine-tune, to retune, to, to rebuild our policy to take account of that uh, because the conditions on the ground have changed totally and our policy has not changed at all so or not 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 very much in a sense i think the us now uh, much more often says taiwan is a vibrant democracy and we applaud that and so on and so forth but um the basic policy is still very similar to the one of the 1970s so that's the 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 tension that we have to emphasize, that we have to um, get across to people, that the present situation is very, very different from, from the one in the 70s. And the assumptions that we made back in the 70s also don't hold water anymore. So, hey, we need to scratch <laughs> behind our ears and say, what kind of new policy do we want? Right. And that is, uh, particularly for uh, bureaucrats, is a very difficult thing to do yeah. because they basically get paid for uh, saying, well, our policy has not changed. Mm. And that's the term that you hear almost all the time when mm -hmm. uh, Biden says something, then somebody comes up and say, hey, our policy has not changed. Well, <laughs> uh, it might be time to change the policy, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. It's my understanding that the Taiwan Relations Act is quite unique and somewhat unprecedented. What do you think is is it that makes it so unique? 
Well, it's of course um, a pretty unique situation that the U.S. has uh, pretty strong informal relations with another country, although many U.S. officials don't uh, dare to say it's a country because that in itself would already be a step in the direction of um, acknowledging or uh, supporting Taiwan independence. But um, so it is um, a, a pretty unique structure that the U.S. maintains all these contacts and that is laid down um, in the law. And I think that makes it it's rather special. There's basically not another place in the world where uh, the U.S. has this kind of relation with. There are a number of countries with which the U.S. doesn't have uh, relations uh, with North Korea and with um, uh, with with uh, Palestine and a couple other places like that. But Taiwan is a vibrant democracy, and it fulfills on all counts as being a uh, full and equal member of the international community, but then it is not treated as such because of the pressure uh, from Beijing. And I think one, one other point on that is that uh, sometimes officials say, well, we don't recognize Taiwan as a country, as a nation state, but I think they need to distinguish between diplomatic recognition, which is a relation with a government, and the fact that uh, Taiwan is a nation state. If you look at international law, you see the uh, Montevideo Convention of 1933, and that gives the basic definitions of what is a nation state. And there you see it has uh, defined territory, it has a stable population. It has a government that can um, act on behalf of that country. So, hey, then then it is a nation state. And right. actually, actually, in the Montevideo Convention, it also says mm -hmm. that um, um, being a nation state is not dependent on recognition by other countries. So you could, um, in theory, be a nation state and not be recognized by, by anybody. And actually that happened with the United States itself. When the United States declared independence in 1776, the first two years there was not a single other country that recognized the new government in Washington. It wasn't until two years later that Spain and then the Netherlands and then a couple other countries uh, extended diplomatic recognition. But the first 25 years of existence of the United States, it was only recognized by seven countries in the world. So I think that's the interesting parallel if you look at Taiwan. Hey, yeah, Taiwan definitely. is. Uh, still recognized by 14 countries in the world. Of course, many of mm -hmm. these are small, but mm -hmm. um, it is it is part of of the game that everybody is playing, yeah. pushing for recognition. Right. That, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. 
Um, since the Tower Relations Act has been passed, there have been other acts that have been passed. Um, do you want to mention any of uh, the other major or important acts that oh, pertain to Taiwan? Yeah. Well, actually, when I was at FAPA, I worked with FAPA uh, for 11 years from 2005 mm -hmm. until 2016. Mm -hmm. We uh, uh, pushed for for quite a number of uh, acts um, in relation to Taiwan. One was mm -hmm. the uh, um, like, uh, high-level visits. And uh, so what we said is, hey, um, Taiwan is now a democracy. Shouldn't U.S. have uh, better relations with Taiwan through high-level visits between U.S. officials mm -hmm. and Taiwan officials? So for years and years, that didn't go anywhere. It would be introduced, but then kind of die, either die in committee right. or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly in 2018, that caught on, and that became the Taiwan Travel Act. Oh, um, so the right. tra Travel Act is, I think, a major uh, new act which uh, states that uh, U.S. and Taiwan should have uh, be able to have contacts at all levels of the government. So since then there have been several other ones. So uh, right. it's it's almost uh, difficult to keep track of all of them now. <laughs> so, and right. that is the great thing about Congress being so positive and so supportive of Taiwan over the yes. past few years, and that is really due to the fact that the Taiwanese American community has worked so hard. Uh, through FAPA and through other organizations mm -hmm. in terms of uh, putting Taiwan as a democracy for the footlight, focusing attention on Taiwan and mm -hmm. focusing attention on the uh, new threats uh, by China against Taiwan. So right. that has really brought together a credible amount of people in Congress who are all mm -hmm agreeing on Taiwan right. and dis disagreeing on just about everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that really is interesting how it's such a bipartisan issue. Another interesting thing that you mentioned in your article about Biden is how there is this term that people mention, the U.S.'s policy of strategic ambiguity. We hear this being used over and over and repeated often by the media. But as you mentioned in your article, it's not a policy at all. Can you explain that a little bit more for my listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, so when Biden made his statements last year and this year, he got a wave of commentaries over him from people in the media who said, well, is he now um, deviating from the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity? And then the next day or a few hours later, the State Department would say, uh, well, our policy has not changed. And the problem is that in the media, current policy is equated with strategic ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And I went back um, to the mid-1990s when the whole concept of strategic ambiguity was first mentioned 
Um, mm -hmm. It was first mentioned by an official from the Defense Department, Mr. Mm -hmm. Joseph Nye, mm -hmm. and he said in some testimony for Congress, you know, our policy of strate strategic ambiguity. Um, but that was a term that he only he really was had invented and uh, was found convenient in terms of explaining the situation vis-a-vis -vis China and Taiwan. He said, you know, uh, if we give them clarity on what we'll do if, um, if China attacks Taiwan or if Taiwan declares independence, uh, that would be bad. So we leave it in the middle. We let it depend on the circumstances. So that was Joseph Nye. But mm -hmm. um, I read in the book by uh, Robert Suttinger, who was the national security uh, director for China and Taiwan and so on in the mid-1990s in the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. And Bob Suttinger wrote in his book that Yes, Mr. Nye was using that term over in the Defense Department, but nobody in the National Security Council, the White House, or the State Department wanted to use the term. They all rejected the term. Uh, jo uh, Tony Lake, who was the National Security Advisor in the first part of the Clinton administration said, mm -hmm. nobody should use this word. It's not part of U.S. policy. And he prohibited his people even from talking about it. I see. And the same uh, with Winston Lord, mm -hmm. who was the Assistant Secretary for East Asia and Pacific in the State mm -hmm. Department. Mm -hmm. He basically uh, also derided the term. He said, no, no, that is not policy uh, <laughs> and so on. Mm -hmm. But... The problem was that the press kind of liked it, and the press started right. to use it to hit the Clinton administration over the head, uh, mm -hmm. put them at the defensive. And from mm -hmm. that time on, it has, star it has started to get a life of its own. Right. So any time that Biden makes a statement, the press uh, jumps up and says, oh, no, he's <laughs> deviating from the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity. But from this information that I just presented, you can see, hey, it wasn't part of U.S. policy uh, at all. So it is just a thing that is uh, going around in the echo chambers of the press. And the press loves it because they can put the administration on the defensive. So, but um, if you really, really uh, go to the to the essence of the matter uh, when the the idea of strategic ambiguity was was invented you see hey it it ain't policy it it is it is a concept but it's certainly never been uh, embedded in us policy it's not part of the taiwan relations act it's not part of the three communiques or the six assurances so hey You've also written about your thoughts on the war in Ukraine, and I'm wondering if you could share your comments on what message you think it sends to China. In other words, what is China taking away from observing how things are playing out between Russia and Ukraine? 
A number of points there that are important. One is, I think, the incredible courage and determination of the Ukrainian people under President Zelensky. Uh, something incredible to behold. You know, he is so courageous. He is fighting back like a small David against a big Goliath. <laughs> and I think for people in Taiwan, that's also a uh, a model and inspiration. Hey, if the Ukrainian people can do it, then we can do it. And we have seen with Ukraine, of course, they are suffering. Their cities are being bombarded into smithereens, but they mm -hmm. keep on fighting and they keep uh, big bad Russia at a distance. And I think that is an important message that uh, comes out of all of this: that hey, if you if you fight back hard, uh, you can keep the uh, the big enemy at bay. Um, the second part is that the reactions from the United States and uh, Western Europe in terms of uh, financial and economic sanctions was very strong. And um, before the Ukrainian war, the Ukrainian invasion, uh, the EU hardly wanted to even talk about sanctions, you know, the hum mm -hmm. and hawed a bit and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. But after it happened, then they came bang, bang, bang with a whole <laughs> set of very strong and very uh, decisive uh, sanctions. And I mm -hmm. think that is also a signal to China and actually some US officials have uh, basically mentioned that already. If you try anything in the direction of Taiwan, then we can uh, apply similar sanctions to China. So China and Russia are, of course, quite different. Uh, Russia was much less dependent uh, on international trade, and China is much bigger, but also more dependent on international trade. So it is a very significant factor. And you see already that China is trying to uh, decrease their reliance on uh, economic and financial uh, systems mm -hmm. that uh, would basically, that could be used by EU and the US uh, mm -hmm. if things uh, got, got worse in the Taiwan Strait. Mm -hmm. So I think those are two very important aspects um, from the Ukrainian war. I think in mm -hmm. Taiwan itself also people have come to the realization, hey, things like that can happen. We got to prepare ourselves right. much better. So you see people taking uh, first aid lessons. Yes. You see people taking uh, uh, gun shooting lessons yes. and everything in between. And I think for the government, uh, basically two lessons. One is uh, we need to get our reserves into shape. That has been a discussion with the United States for some time already. But I think the Tsai Ing-wen administration is now uh, much more serious about uh, the reserve system or, and how that could could be revamped and reshaped mm -hmm. and made, made much mm -hmm. more potent mm -hmm. so that you do have people who have experience in actually handi 
handling weapons and sometimes pretty sophisticated okay. weapons. Mm -hmm. And the uh, United States reserves, you know, sometimes they are sent out to Iraq, they are sent out to different other countries mm -hmm. to, to fight. And hey, mm -hmm. so you have to be able to, to, to deploy uh, those people in a very meaningful way, in this case, mm -hmm. for the defense of Taiwan. Right. And the other part of it is uh, rethinking of the type of weapons that Taiwan needs. And that process is also ongoing now uh, with uh, rethinking with the United States. And so the Ukrainian war has shown the importance of long-range precision artillery of uh, longer range uh, uh, rockets to fire at ships, for instance, mm -hmm. and for Taiwan that will be pretty darn important to have just mm -hmm. hundreds if not thousands of those rockets uh, sitting mm -hmm. ready to fire mm -hmm. and just keep on firing, keep on firing if China mm -hmm. would try anything in Taiwan's direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I wanted to thank you very much for your time and sharing all this information to clarify a lot of the discussion and understanding around Taiwan. Also, to thank you for all the work that you continue to do. I know that you still often write articles related to Taiwan, so thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's really been an honor and a privilege to be part of the democracy movement. I've really learned so much and made so many good friends over the years uh, who were active and who really were so dedicated to Taiwan. And I think it's mm -hmm. great that the younger generation is taking that over and, and continuing the good fight. It will uh, be still quite, uh, it requires a lot of effort to push things in the right direction. But I think that it is possible uh, for Taiwan to eventually become a full and equal member in the international community. Uh, but it takes time eh? and we have to keep on pushing, so that's important. I've been speaking with Garrett Vanderwees, a former Dutch diplomat. From 1980 through 2016, he served as chief editor of Taiwan Communique. Also from 2005 through 2016, he was liaison for the Senate and State Department at FAPA headquarters. He currently teaches the history of Taiwan at George Mason University and current issues in Asia at George Washington University's Elliott School for International Affairs. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATWA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATWA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all, to learn more about Natwa, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.